Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we're going to start at verses 1, and we're going to skip through. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and Edrai had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Moving on to verse 19. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went towards the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Moving on to verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large and the walls up to the sky. We even saw Amorites there. Moving on to verse 34. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his foot on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Verse 41. Then you replied, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up to the hill country. But the Lord said to me, Tell them, Don't go up and fight, because I won't be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you wouldn't listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Good morning, Happy New Year and all that stuff. Thank you to Martin. It's that time of year again when there's not a lot 
of content in the newspapers. Oh, yeah, I bought one yesterday. It's a complete waste of money because the uh, news writers were saying there's nothing really to say and who wants to write when actually we all want to be on holiday? That was Charles Cohen writing in the Times. But he still managed to write a thousand words or not a lot. If you take uh, Martin's lead of looking back and looking forward, if you take the advice of the world to make resolutions, perhaps it's something like this. Uh, you can guess which one mine might be. Perhaps you want to lose some pounds. Perhaps you want to gain some fitness. Perhaps you want to watch a little less. Perhaps you want to read a little more. Perhaps you want to uh, miss out on uh, some things, but look forward to experiencing others. All those things that you hope will be better in the year to come than the year that has come to an end. It's the time of resolution and the time of looking uh, by uh, vocationally, looking back and looking forward. And that is a helpful key to the beginning of this book. We're going to spend three months looking at it. We're going to go through it quite quickly. We've had our long, slow book going through Luke. Now we're going to go quicker this year through three books. And we're going to be begin with the book of Deuteronomy. It's a, it's a historical book. It was written at least a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. It's about God's grace and his dealings and his mercy with his people again and again. And it's recorded by the pen, as it were, of Moses. He writes three big sermons to God's people to say, this is what the Christian life looks like. Learn from the past, trust God for the future, and if you know and have experienced something of his mercy and grace, this is what it looks like. How does your life shape up to God's grace and mercy that he's shown to you again and again, will you make the same mistakes that your father's made? Or will you live in the light of God's grace? Will you trust him? Because God is completely trustworthy. And to begin by just making plans for the future, that would be a mistake. And so Moses spends the first three chapters of the book of Deuteronomy by looking backwards, by saying, I want you to make promises for the future, but I want you to get your bearings from the past. And that's the message of chapters 1, 2, and into chapter 3. The New Year's resolution, the new life's resolution, that begins in chapter 4. But here's a quick look at the past. Here's a look back. Moses, he's really old. You may feel old this morning if you stayed up past midnight. I did not. Someone cycled by our house uh, at 1 o'clock, was it, I think? And all the lights were off. They were off a long time before 1 o'clock, I assure you. But uh, I was feeling old as I turned off the light about 11 o'clock. Didn't even make it to midnight. Here is Moses, he's 120 years old. He's been called out of retirement when he was 80, something like that. He's been called to lead God's people to the promised land. God has worked miraculously and wondrously by leading God's people, his own people, rescuing them from bondage, rescuing them from the, the heel of an Egyptian taskmaster who hated them and who wanted them to work harder and harder and harder. God opened a physical barrier, the Red Sea. God delivered them through the Red Sea and he gave them promises. He said to them, I've shown you my grace and mercy, therefore live in the light of that. It's called the Ten Commandments. But God's people thought that God was not trustworthy. He thought he was not, they thought he was not kind, he was not loving, he was not merciful. And so rather than trusting him and living in light of his grace and mercy, they chose to rebel. They chose to turn their back on him. They thought he wasn't kind. He wasn't merciful. They had before them their inheritance. They had before them a land. They had before them freedom. They had before them rest. They had before them 
just the best that you can imagine. And yet still, this chapter teaches us, they thought, as Moses takes us back, about 40 years, that God is not kind, he is not good, he cannot be trusted. That's the message of this opening chapter. It starts with this passage, it's really called a spy narrative. We can see that from verses 9 through to verse 33. Here's an opportunity for a new beginning. Here's an opportunity for new resolutions to be made, chapter 4. But before that, says Moses, you need to learn the lessons from the past. Will you learn the lessons from the past? Or will, you, will history repeat itself again? Will you make the same mistakes? Will you not take God at his word? Will you not trust his character? Will you not live in the light of the grace that he has shown to you? That's the challenge that this passage places before us. And it starts with a historical event, the spy narrative, and it reveals to us, point number one, there is something, regardless of the year, there is something wrong with the human heart. There's something wrong with the human heart. We can see that from this chapter. It's 40 years after God has rescued his people, verse 1 and into verse 2. Verse 2 tells us it's a mere 11 days' journey from Mount Sinai to Mount Nebo. But because of the way God's people chose to disobey God, to not take him at his word, to to make idols in uh, an image that they thought up, to worship a golden calf rather than worshipping the God of faith who's shown his mercy and grace to them. An 11-day journey turned, verse 2 and into verse 3, into 40 years. So 40 years of wandering with dust between their toes and sand under their toenails. God's people are doubting his word. He's the God of provision. He's the God of promise. And yet God's people said, no, we don't want to take you at your word. We won't trust you. We don't think you're trustworthy. We don't think you're good. We don't think you're kind. So by the time we get to verse 21 and Moses has taken us on a history lesson, God is reminding a new generation through the lips of Moses some promises that he made. Verse 21, Moses said to a previous generation, don't be afraid, go up and possess the land. Why? Because God has gone ahead of you. We know it's dangerous, says Moses to God's people. We know that there's going to be people with spears. We know there's going to be arrows flying. We know there's going to be people that need to be battled and fought with. Of course they're enemies. But God has gone before you. That's the key sentence. God has gone ahead of you. So don't be afraid. Go up and take possession of your land. This is what I said to your forefathers, says Moses, to a new generation. And one of the things we see immediately is something very troubling. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, Moses recounts how a previous generation said, okay, but Moses, first let's send some spies in. Let's send some spies in first. Before we all troop in, now there's nothing wrong with this militarily, that makes common sense, doesn't it? To send some spies in to, to check out the land, to see how big the uh, reinforcements need to be, to see how large the enemy forces are, to see how big the cities are, to see all the things that you need to take on. There's nothing wrong with this militarily, but it does reveal something in their heart. God has just said, Go in and take possession of the land. I've gone before you. I'm the God of promise. Remember all the miraculous deeds I did by delivering you from the hands of the Egyptians, by opening the Red Sea. Remember the way I led you in the desert by a pillar of cloud and fire. I am with you. I've gone before you. And God's people said, okay, but we just want to check out the land first for ourselves. 
And it's very interesting, in the original language, they use exactly the same words. We want some spies too, exactly the same words, go before us. We know you've gone before us, God, but just to make sure, we want some of our own spies to go before us. They're not taking God at his words. It reveals something about the human heart. Verse 28, when the spies return, what do they respond? What do they report? The people are stronger. They're taller than we are. The cities are large. The walls go up to the sky. We even saw, dun, 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 an Alekite's there. And our hearts melted at the news. Our hearts trembled because although God has said he's gone before us, we can't see him. Although he's made promises, they look like they're not going to come true. Our spies have reported huge enemies, huge city walls, large opposition against us. There's no way that God can keep his promise. And so our hearts were melting. Moses, you're wrong, verse 27. God cannot be trusted. Look at this, verse 27. The Lord hates us. The Lord hates us. God hates us. We know that we had ten plagues in, uh, I was going to say Epsom. We know it's not going to be that bad and that's not prophetic. We know that we had ten plagues when we were in Egypt. We know it was hard work. We know that we were slaves. But God hates us. God hates us because he's brought us to this point and there are enemies in the land that he's promised to give us. God cannot be trusted. We know that there was manna in the desert, but now God hates us. We're better off back there. It's a problem in the human heart. Here's something I want to draw to your attention. Friends, if I asked you in 2017 with your newspapers open, or even better, with your Bibles open, and I was to ask you, what's the problem with the world today? What would you say? How would you respond? What do we need for 2017 to be a really good year? What we need, perhaps, is more Christian education. We need people to know more about God. If God's laws were in our land, if Theresa May had the courage and conviction of her Christian faith to make it a Christian country, then it would be a better place. That would be a great 2017. What about if people simply knew the difference between right and wrong? That would make an excellent 2017. But what is central to those three or four things is people need to know more about God. People need more knowledge of God. That's the real problem with the world. People don't believe in God, they don't know him. But friends, that's not what the Bible says. Romans chapter 1 is just one example that says there is adequate, sufficient knowledge in the created world for people to know that there is a God, that God exists. So that cannot be the complete answer. The real problem I think the Bible speaks to, whether it's in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, whether it's this chapter here, is that people don't trust God. We don't think he's good. We don't think he's trustworthy. We don't think his promises are sure and certain. We don't think that his grace is sufficient. And that is why verse 2 tells us 11 days turned into 40 years because we cannot take God at his word. That's the problem with the human heart. We think God is not kind. Did God really say? Can God be trusted? If God were really kind, he'd let you eat from every single tree in this garden. Oh yeah, but he says we can eat from nearly all of them. There's just one. That's boundaries. It doesn't mean God's a spoil sport that he can't be trusted. 
I uh, was doing some holiday reading, um, as you do. One of it was a book called Hugar, how to, be, how to Live in a Danish Way. My mum buys me this kind of strange book. It's a bit of a tradition. Last year it was woodcutting. This year it was how to be happy in a Danish manner. But I also flicked through a book that I read when I was doing some teacher training by a guy called Eric Erikson. I'm sure you haven't heard of him. You may have done. He was a famous psychologist. And he said there are eight crisis points as a child grows up, from child to uh, young years to teenage years and into adulthood. Eight crisis points. He says... In early years developmentally, if a child, if a baby, if a child growing up into, you know, up to five, if they cannot trust their parents, then it, can, it will just detrimentally affect the whole of their existence. He says the first few years of a child's life, if they cannot trust that their mum and dad will give them food that is nutritious, if they do not trust that their mum and dad know their best for them, if they cannot trust that their mum and dad will clothe and protect and provide for them, it will affect them hugely throughout all their life. They will become self-absorbed. They will become self-protective because they think no one can be trusted. If mum and dad can't be trusted, then no one can be trusted. The world's out to get me. Therefore, I need to look after myself. Here we have God's people who have seen and heard so much of God's mercy and grace, his miraculous, unique provision. And yet, what is their problem? Verse 27, God is out to hate us. We can't go in and take God at his word. I know that he said he's gone before us, but we need to send out our own spies because God is not trustworthy. That's the problem with the human heart. Not taking God at his word, not thinking that God is good. But this passage, if that's the problem, shows that this can come out in two different ways. That's the second point. This, this un this temptation to not think that God is trustworthy, it comes out in two different ways. Here's uh, the first response, it's in verses 26 to 33. How can this attitude be seen? Here's the first way. Irreligion. Irreligion, verses 26 to 33. Notice these sentences, here's the first response. If God is like this, let's just give up on him. Verse 26 it's a time of rebellion. Verse 27, murmuring and grumbling starts to occur. Verse 32, it's a time of unbelief. If the first expression of mistrusting God is to say, he's not there, he hates us, we can't trust him, the first thing we're tempted to do is just to turn our back on God and walk away. We're tempted to say God is not good, he is not trustworthy, I'm going to walk away. I'm not going to give him a second thought. I want nothing to do with him. That's the first temptation we face. But then look at the second. They hear back from God in verses 34 to 36. And what happens next? Look at verses 34 to 36. Okay, I know we need to go back to the desert. And you can't go into the promised land now, says God. You, can go, you can't go back to Egypt. You're not going to go back to shackles and irons. But your attitude deserves an appropriate just response. And I'm going to take you back into the promised land. You are not going to be the generation to lead us. Maybe it will be your children. Maybe it will be your grandchildren. But you're going to go back into the promised land for 40 years. When they hear those words from God, 
rather than irreligion, rather than saying, I'm going to turn my back on God, I'm not going to worship him, I'm going to go elsewhere, what are they tempted to do? Here's the second manifestation of a heart that doesn't trust God. It's called religion. It's called religion. Look at verse 41. If the first one is irreligion, God cannot be trusted, I'm going to run away from him. I'm going to turn my back on him. Here's the second response. If we think that God is not trustworthy, the temptation is to get incredibly religious. Incredibly religious. Look at the second response, verse 41. When they hear God speak, they say, we have sinned against the Lord. That's repentance, right? Then they say, we're going to go up. We're going to fight. That's obedience. And then we're tempted to think, what's the matter with God here? Why then is there weeping? Why does God not listen? Why does God not go with them? Look at verse 41. When they say, we have sinned against the Lord, is that repentance? It sounds like repentance. Does it sound like they're really sorry for their sin? There is a difference, isn't there? When a mistake happens and you get found out, when you rebel against God, when you live in a way that is disobedient to God, the Bible calls that sin. There's a difference between someone who is sorrowful for their sin because they've got caught and someone who is sorry for their sin because they've offended God. And between those two things is all the difference in the world. There was once a young couple on our sofa. It was three years ago, so it wasn't in Epsom. And there's a problem in the marriage. And so Joe and I uh, said, come round, we'll try and talk and see if we can help you and understand what's happening. Something had happened and the husband had got caught. Tears were running down his face. But the big issue for me when I sought to challenge him was he was sorry, but he was only sorry that he got caught. He was only sorry he got caught. He didn't care about the sin itself. He didn't even care that he'd hurt his wife tremendously. He only cared about himself. And he was only sorry that he got caught out. Look at what is said here in verse 41. This is not true repentance, I don't think. This is simply a sorrow for the consequences of what they're going to miss out on. Look at this, not only that, but look at the obedience that happens. We're going to go and fight. Not only is it not true repentance, it says we're going to obey you now because we want to get something from you, God. This is not out of gratitude for what you've done. This is rather to force God's hand. We're going to fight and we want you to fight with us because we want to get into the promised land, because we're going to miss out on something that you said that you would give to us. We don't think you're trustworthy, but we're going to trust ourselves to get the job done. We don't really want to go in, but this is better than the desert. This is better than what our parents experienced. So we want to go in, and we want you to come with us. These two seeming opposites are actually very, very close. You've got irreligion where God is not trustworthy, therefore we're going to run a million miles away from him. But also, actually, God isn't trustworthy, therefore we're going to obey really, really hard to make him pleased with us, and then we'll get something from him. These two apparent opposites are actually very, very close bedfellows. Both ways of treating God, saying that you're not trustworthy, but I can do something, and if I do enough, I can get you to bless me. I can get you to be with me. I can get you to provide for me. I can get you to do something so that this year will be better than last year. If I read my Bible through every day, so that you owe me. 
If I pray every day, if I go to church every Sunday, then you will owe me. That's religion. It sounds better than irreligion, but actually they're very close bedfellows. One person is tempted to get something, or get away from God by running as far away from him as possible. The other person is tempted to get as close as possible to get something from him. But both hearts think that God is not trustworthy because that's the problem of all of our human hearts. You can be sat, don't look at the person next to you, two people can be sat in the same school hall in Stamford Green on the first of the year. Both can be praying diligently. Both can be giving generously. Both can be living trying to obey the Ten Commandments for two radically different reasons. They look very, very similar on the outside. They're very different on the inside. But both people are using God to meet their own ends. One is trying to make God give them what they want. So they're not really obeying him, they're using him. The other is trying to respond to God truly because of all the things that he has given to him in Jesus. One is responding out of gratitude and joy. The other one is trying to twist God's arm. One is fear-based, one is joy-based. One is love-based and gratitude-based. One is religious-based, one is living and believing the gospel. It's the problem we face with the human heart. that We think that God is not trustworthy, so we're tempted to twist his arm with our obedience and our performance, rather than seeing we don't just want to get God to get something from him. We want to worship God because he's God. We want to enjoy him. We want to know him. We don't want to get something from him. We want to get him. It's the difference between someone who lives religiously, difference between an irreligious person who wants nothing to do with God and someone who believes the gospel. Someone who doesn't want something from God. They want God himself. And they'll say, I'll lose everything as long as I don't lose you. It's the problem of the human heart to not trust God, to not take him at his word. There are at least two responses to God. One is irreligion. I'm going to leave God. One is religion. I'm going to try and work really, really hard to get God to please me so that he can meet my aims. It's the third way of saying, I don't want to lose you. Take everything away, but I want you. It's the gospel way. And here's notice with this problem of the human heart, God's solution. Thirdly, if this problem is the temptation to run away from God or to try and twist his arm with our own efforts, how does God seek to solve the problem? How does God make a third, a gospel way? Look at verse 35. Why didn't God just say to his people who were rebellious, this past generation, why doesn't he say in verse 35, Something like, forget it. I know I made a promise to you, but it's over. Why doesn't God say, um, I've had it with you? Why doesn't God do that? He would be right to do that. He, that would be an appropriate response. He's shown them his grace and mercy, and they've thrown it back in his face. So why doesn't God smite them or let them all die out? Why is there a little remnant? Look at verse 35. There's the key. What's God's solution for our, untrust, our untrusting nature in him? Verse 35 says, I swore, I made a promise, I made a covenant, I swore, and I'm still working with you because I swore to your forefathers that I would bless them. Why does God not smite every single one of them? Why does God not turn his back on them, as we're so tempted and so often do to turn our back on him? 
because he made a covenant promise. I'll look back at chapter 1, verse 8. Because God swore, he swore to Abraham, God made a covenant promise. That's why he's not going to turn his back on his uh, faithless people. That's why he's giving a new generation a history lesson through the lips of Moses so that when we get to chapter 4, they are faced with a choice and God pleads with them to choose life, choose to respond to his grace and his mercy, not to win his favour, but in response because they've already got it because they're his people. But why does God not smite them? Because of this promise, verse 8 and verse 35. And here he's responding all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, Abraham is having a bad day. And he's saying, Father God, how do I know that you're going to bless me? How do I know that you are going to keep your promise to me? It looks like you're not coming through to me. It looks like you're not going to come through for me. And God says to Abraham, take some animal pieces, take some carcasses, cut them in half and make a pathway. Make a pathway. And I'm going to show you that I will never, ever break my promise to you. Now, in the ancient Near East, the Hittite culture would say, when there was a big king and a little king, to make a covenant promise, you wouldn't sign a declaration. You wouldn't say, click that you've read terms and conditions on your uh, iPad or whatever you use. You would cut a covenant. You would make a solemn vow. You would cut animal pieces. You would make a pathway. And the big king would never walk through the pieces, but the small king, The vassal, not the suzerain, the vassal, he would walk through the pieces and they would say these solemn oath-forming words to witnesses. If I break this covenant promise, little king says to big king, may I become like these animals? May I be torn in two? But the big king would never go through the pieces. That would be too demeaning for them. It would always be in only the little king with the exception in all ancient Near Eastern literature being Genesis chapter 15. When Moses, as he's put into, excuse me, Abraham, when he's put into a spiritually deep sleep, sees God pass through the pieces, the, not big king, he's the almighty king, he's the creator king, he's the king. And God says, I'm so committed to my promises that I and I alone, it's all down to me says God, I will go through the pieces. This is how sure Abraham, this is how certain Moses, this is how convinced, Christian friend in 2017, you can be that God will be with you in 2017 because God went through the pieces. It wasn't Abraham, it wasn't Moses, we don't need to do it. But God has made the promise with himself to keep his covenant, to keep his promise. And because of that, Moses can say, go in and take the land. Go in and take the land in a way that your forefathers did not, that your parents did not. God has gone before you. He will keep his promise. You can trust him. He is completely trustworthy. Take him at his words. You can send up spies, but you shouldn't and you don't need to because God has gone before you. Now, how can God, who is invisible, say such a thing? I mean, Israel wanted to send those spies. And Moses says, hey, look, God has gone ahead of you. He knows it's dangerous. He knows there's spies. He knows there's spears. He knows there's arrows. He knows there's going to be fortified towns and cities. But God has gone before you. How can God say, I will be with you? Because God has faced your enemies, says the Bible. God has faced every arrow. He's faced every spear. 
and he's gone up before us. He's gone up ahead of us. I was thinking this week, and I couldn't think of a specific example, but you can fill in the blank. There are so many examples in books that I can't think of them, and so many illustrations of films that I can't remember them, of people, captains going over first into the First World War. There are people who say, look, you stay there, and I'll run over there, and I'll draw the fire. There are books and films where you have acts of heroism, where people say, look, I will lay down my life so that you can, you can have life. I will draw the fire. I will dive over the cliff first. I will make a way out so you can be free. And they lose their lives. They lay it down. And friends, that's what we need. We need someone to go before us, someone to take the initiative, someone to be our captain in the battle. And surely this is talking about something that's figurative. As Moses says, God has gone before you. He's talking about a figurative picture. But I don't think he is, because in the gospel, someone has gone before us, literally. Someone has gone before us historically. God in Jesus became human flesh. That's what we've remembered at Christmas time. Jesus Christ, our captain. Jesus Christ who goes ahead of us. Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us so that we might have life. Jesus Christ who draws enemy fire. Jesus Christ who goes up first out of the trench. Jesus Christ who battles with our enemies. And he doesn't just take uh, metaphorical spears and arrows. He takes them literally. He takes them literally. As God went to the cross, he didn't just take spears and arrows, so to speak, or bullets, that is a figurative phrase. He went ahead of us and he took what really, truly could destroy us, namely our sin, namely our rebellion against God, namely the justice of God that's meted out on him rather than us. And because of that, because he's gone before us, that means we can go up. That means we can go up. What do I mean? You don't know what 2017 will bring. I'm not talking politically. I'm not talking on the world stage. I'm talking personally. I don't know what 2017 will be or bring for me. You don't know what it will bring for you. We don't know the employment that we will gain or the employment that we will lose. We don't know the health that we will have renewed and a new lease of life. Do you know the uh, average 55-year-old man has four tablets a day? Um, I, medical tablets a day, I heard that this morning. So tablets can give you life. I won't ask you if you take more or less than that. We don't know what health we will uh, have renewed as we take tablets or not, or we don't know if we will lose life itself. We don't know if an accident will happen and our life will end. We don't know if our family will be kept safe this year or every parent's nightmare, it will be damaged or hurt or a tragedy will occur that we can't control. We don't know if the person next to us will be here next year. Let's think corporately. What about as a church? We don't know the challenges that we will face in the year to come. We don't know the temptations to divide that we will experience. We don't know the tall um, people in the land of Epsom that we'll be tempted to tremble before. We don't know the huge um, fortified structures, not of Canaan, but perhaps of a worldview that we'll be tempted to say, there's no way that a Christian friend could believe the gospel over that. We don't know. We can face 2017 with lots of uncertainty. But friends, here's one thing that is concrete and is true. Jesus Christ has gone before us. 
God has gone before us. He does not say that life will be serene, that suffering will not happen. But God does promise us his presence through Jesus and through his spirit. What do you mean God's gone before us? Look at this. Jesus Christ in the gospel, he lost his glory. He made himself of no reputation at all. He experienced absolute alienation from the Father. Why? Why was Jesus Christ prepared to do that? So that we who believe in him could know him and have a future that is steadfast and secure and certain. Physical changes will happen. There will be losses. There will be successes. There will be failures. There will be triumphs. There will be tears of sadness and of joy in 2017. But friends, God has gone before us in his son. There is certainty, not in the earthly sense, but eternally. Jesus Christ took the bullet. He stepped on the landmine. He opened the gate. He plunged off the bridge with the Balrog. That's for you Lord of the Rings friends. He's the one who had his heart frozen. He went through all of that so that whatever 2017 brings, that God is sovereignly in control of every single jot and tittle. We don't need to be afraid. We can go in because of every real arrow, every real spear, every real thing that could hurt us has already been dealt with by Jesus eternally. We will face suffering physically now. We will face difficulty and suffering spiritually as well, but there is nothing to be afraid of in 2017 because God is the same. Friends, do you know why we're tempted to say uh, what we read of in verse 27, that God hates us? I think one of the reasons it's here in verse 27 is because actually in our heart of hearts, we know that he should hate us. Hear me carefully. We know that he should hate us. We know that because of our rebellious hearts, that we deserve condemnation ourselves. But here's the grace of the gospel. God should hate us, but he loves us in Jesus. God should smite us, but he saves us in Jesus. God should turn his back on us as we've turned our back on him, but he turns to embrace us in Jesus. We have a king who loves us and who gave the infinite cost so that he can be with us to the end of time, no matter what. You've got no reason to be afraid of 2017. You've got every reason to trust God for every day that comes. And if this news is so great, why don't we go out in 2017 and prayerfully share it with people who we've never shared it with before? Why don't we pray even this week for a non-Christian friend or neighbor that we would have an opportunity to share this great news that God has gone before us, that Jesus Christ died for us, that he lives and intercedes for us. Good news, this great deserves not to be kept, but to be shared, doesn't it? Let's pray that God will help us to do that. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to take you at your word. Please help us to see that you are not untrustworthy, but you are completely faithful. Thank you for those saints of old who do indeed line the way, who tell of triumphs of your grace. And please help us on our journey to trust you every step of the way. Forgive our unbelief. Help us to see in Jesus the commitment that you have to your glory and to us. And please, may 2017 be a year full of faith, full of you, full of our knowledge and love of you, and full of prayers being answered of people that we would long to see amongst us, coming amongst us, as you draw them to yourself and to faith in your dear Son, your dear Son Jesus, through your Spirit we pray. Amen.